This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this week's episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, I'm in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, the occasion, of course, is the weekend of uh, the Festival of Barrel-Aged Beers, Fobob. And joining me for this episode is Jacob Sombrano from Cruz Blanca. Welcome to the podcast, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Hello. Yeah, last time I was in Chicago a couple years ago, we were filming some video classes and yeah. uh, got a, a quick visit in over here. We yep. met up and uh, had some tacos and drank some beers. And uh, you, I have been trying to find time to do a podcast ever since. <laughs> Two years later, I finally, I, I, I was dead set on coming to FOBOB last year. I, it was on my calendar. And then like two weeks before, I just couldn't make it work in the schedule and I had to, had to bail on it. This year, I am dead set on coming to FOBOB. My first time at FOBOB. And uh, and being able to do this podcast with you is another primary reason Great. why the trip was worth it. Um, for those of you that are not as familiar with Cruz Blanca, you know if you you can read the reviews in Craft Beer and Brewing, um, some fantastic beers like uh, 2021 Ray Gordo scored a 97, uh, Vita Miga uh, mixed yeah. culture beer scored a 96. Uh, Ray Cuvée in 2020 scored a 96. Even Freetown Hazy IPA <laughs> scored a 95. And then, uh, you know, uh, Cruz Blanca Light yeah. uh, has a 91. A 91. We uh, came back shocked. <laughs> I was shocked by that. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, you know, so we've had some some fantastic beers, uh, you know, and it just been super impressed. And Thanks. I've been trying to just stay in touch with what's going on here at Cruz mm -hmm. Blanca. And, uh, you know, over the last couple of months, there's you know, more big growth story for Cruz yeah. Blanca, as you all are getting into some, uh, into some strategic partnerships sure. and uh, yeah. and blowing up some of your brands and, uh, you know, kind of moving around and getting out of just this Chicago footprint. Yeah. We can talk about a little bit of that, but we're definitely going to talk about how, uh, how you make flavorful beers. Really, no IPAs, or not many IPAs, I should say. Yeah, it's not something I have a burning desire to do, even though I like drinking them. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I think our owner president manny would uh prefer i liked ipas a little bit more but <laughs> sure it's sure. okay <laughs> uh, but you know tapping into your history uh you know with goose island and more you make some killer barrel aged beers and also some killer light drinkable yeah. but characterful lager beers and uh, and other light sessionable styles we're going to talk about both of those things both ends of that gravity yeah. spectrum right there before we do that g and d chillers the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Want to maximize efficiency in your chiller? GD's micro-channel condensers are designed for less power draw. Their lighter weight and more compact design uses up to 70% less refrigerant, which means a lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call them to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG. Want a natural and economical clarification aid that doesn't impact beer flavor? Then you need Cary Biofine Eco. Developed as a part of Cary's Eco Brewing range, Biofine Eco is a plant-based fining agent that improves beer clarification by instant flocculation of yeast and troop. Available exclusively from BSG, visit bsgcraftbrewing.com 
to learn more. And is your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer? If you need a central source for fruit flavor, Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. All right, Jacob, we normally start the podcast off with a little bit of history. Uh, why don't you tell us ours? Uh, what's this kind of career path that you have walked through craft beer that has led you here? To uh, yeah. you know, is it head brewer, director of brewing ops? Like, what is your title here at Cruz Blanca? Uh, head, head brewer. Head yeah. brewer. Cool. Um, it's a pretty, uh, pretty wild one, and uh, it was none of it was deliberate. So I think that's kind of cool. Um, but it does start straight out of high school. Uh, I went to culinary school. Uh, I didn't have like a burning desire to be a chef or to cook, but you know. I had to do something as according to my mother, she's like, you, well, you got to do something, right? I didn't think that traditional academic route was for me. I just don't think I have that kind of like rigid discipline. So I said, okay, I think culinary school would be good because it's, I've always been good at like applying ideas and, and just like hands-on work, right? Where I can see immediate results is always been something I've been really good at. So Go to culinary school, 2003. Goes pretty well. I start working for uh, a lot of restaurants in Austin. So I, I back up. I'm from Texas, Austin, Texas. Um, start working at uh, you know banquets, banquet kitchens, uh, hotel restaurants, and then I kind of slowly start moving my culinary career in Austin to more locally driven and kind of like nose to tail, if you know. Uh, farm to table type restaurants. And I think that was like the big aha moment because then running specials based upon seasonality and things like that, that was really fascinating to me because then you have to really respect your ingredients and, and, and think about them uh, and their versatility. And you know, it's just a really, really mindfulness uh, really when it come, when it came to cooking and food and, I mean, I was 18, 19 years old when I started cooking, you know, and once I became 20 and 21, 22, I mean, I was running like daily specials at restaurants. Uh, before I left Austin, I was the sous chef of a pretty well-known restaurant at the time. It, rest in peace, doesn't, no longer exists, but, you know, I, we cooked at the James Beard house and we were like food and wines, top 10 restaurants of 2028 20, or 27 or something like that. So I just kind of like immediately got th- propulted into this uh, like world of creativity, right? And my life ran its course in Austin um, by around when I was 25. Um, I could have stayed there and kept doing what I was doing. And I would have really enjoyed it. But something, I had an urge to just kind of go out, do something different. Um, a friend of mine who now is back in Austin uh, was living here in Chicago and uh, they moved in with their partner. So their room became available. So blindly uh, just moved to Chicago, packed up my car, fit as much stuff as I could into it, drove to Chicago. Uh, Thankfully uh, the the beauty of the chef life, right? right? You know, you're pretty much assured. (laughs) Yeah. You'll uh, do anything. (laughs) You can, you can get another job as soon as you need it. That is absolutely correct. Uh, That getting a job, was never even a concern 
because in Chicago, the culinary scene, even in, so this is in 2010, the culinary scene was booming. Like, I mean, it's sure, still sure. booming, but it was in this like really cool scene where you started seeing now chefs that have uh, multiple restaurants and restaurant groups, they were really starting to kind of like come into their own. Um, and that was a really good time for, I mean, I'm, there's never not a good time for Chicago food, but that was, I felt like that was a really powerful moment. Um, so, and they were all in food. Um, so it was actually, I moved into a house of two people and both there was, it was an Austin house. Right, Everybody right. came in and out of Austin that lived in that house. Uh, so yeah, moved to Roscoe village, which is a pretty nice area of Chicago. Um, rent was $400. Uh, we lived on a two flat with a backyard, a really memorable experience. And for $400 a month and you're 25 years old. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to fucking do it. Uh, so it worked out really well. I came here blindly. Um, within two days, I had a job, like you said. Uh, <laughs> I got a job working at this restaurant in Bucktown called The Bristol, which uh, had recently closed. But again, at the time, it was really it was a cool place. I mean, it continued to be one of the better neighborhood restaurants in Bucktown for up until it closed. Uh, and again, they were doing a lot of kind of farm to table stuff. I remember, yeah. you know, going into the basement and they had cooler of like a full walk-in cooler designated to cure it and pickled things. You know, they would buy big during the, during the summer seasons and they would preserve to get them all through summer or excuse me, uh, through winter and fall. And, you know, I, I really felt at place at, at home at that place because, um, because their approach to food was what I had already been doing in, in, in Austin. Sure. Uh, however, and a lot of fermentation. Is yeah. Part fermentation, of man. I was side note, uh, you know, when I, before I left Austin and when I moved to Chicago, I was making cheese as kind of like a hobbyist, uh, you know, went to Vermont to learn, uh, to work on a cheese creamery, uh, for, you know, a couple of weeks. Um, I, when I was making cheese in Austin, I was kind of like bootlegging, getting raw milk under the table from farmers and making cheese and then serving it on the cheese plates. And I was making, you know, sh uh, fresh, <laughs> fresh oh, chefs, farmers, cheeses, yeah. camembert blues. Yeah. Like a lot of really cool stuff. I had like modified uh, a wine cooler uh, and, you know, had like little humidity uh, controlled chambers and yeah, it was a really cool thing, but uh, yeah, m that fermentation, it always is fascinating. And then, Moved to Chicago, start working at the Bristol. It was a pretty tough job because uh, you worked at the time, uh, Chicago still, I guess the is industry norm was still uh, shift pay. So it was $100 a day. So after taxes, $80 a day. And we didn't have any prep cooks in that kitchen. So you owned your station. So either you came in six hours to before open to prep your station or, you know, if you're sitting pretty, then you could show up, you know, three hours before open. Uh, so it was, it was really tough. I mean, we were easily working 10, 12 hour days almost every day for not a whole lot of money, but I could do it. You know, I had the, I had the energy and I was able and about four months into working at the Bristol, um, we were doing these like, sh uh, we got invited to do a chef collaboration. So, uh, and this was at Goose. Uh, at the brew pub at Clybourne. So we came in um, and we made uh, beer at Goose uh, and it was a black IPA. It was called a beer named Sue. Uh, black IPA and, you know, the usual suspects, Cascade, Chinook, um, Centennial, Citra, uh, which 2010, kind of cool, I guess. 
uh, we when we look at the trajectory of IPA, uh, it was happening then too. Oh, the days of black IPA. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's bring it back again. Come on, um, it's now we're now nostalgic for black right. IPA. Right. I mean, there's a couple of people that make still make incredible black IPAs, uh, and I enjoyed that collaboration so much that. Um, the following day, I emailed the head brewer and I was like, look, I'm just in from Chicago or I'm just in from Texas. Like I, you know, I was just drinking Lone Star and Modelo and stuff. I didn't have any sense about beer. Like I had Dell's Pale Ale, you know, back in Austin and, and a couple of, uh, you know, brown owls and stuff like that. And, you know, it, yeah, I got it. I understood it, but I, I didn't have like a, a big motivation to make beer or driving force to make beer. But when I was at that, when I was at Goose Island, I really was fascinated with the process. So I started coming in on my on my days off uh, for yeah, a couple of weeks, and you know, already working a ton yeah. in kitchens. I, I don't know. I just had a lot of energy. You're in a right. new city. Everything is new and fresh. So you just you just roll with it and you lean into it. So I started working. Um, you know, going in on my days off at Goose, and then a part time position became available. Uh, so I just kind of said, you know, what? I'm going to do this, right? Like I quickly noticed that, um, Goose Island was a part of Chicago. It was an institution. Uh, when you walked into that Clyborne brew pub, you were a part of history. Uh, when did they open? 88? Uh, I think in 88, you were a part of history and I felt like what better way to like really become a part of the city by getting an opportunity to work for an institution. Not only that, uh, that Clyborne Brew Pub, several very talented brewers came in and out of that place. Uh, so yeah, I mean, what better, what better opportunity? Sure. So, you know, started it's, digging, you know, you scrubbing floors, metaphor, all that stuff. I mean, you get to work under some star chefs yeah. and tap into their brains. Uh, you know, if you get to do the equivalent in the brewing world. Sure. You know, as someone who's young and hungry, why wouldn't you jump at that opportunity? Uh, the quality of life immediately improved because I'm not like, you know, I guess uh, we talk about the atrocities in the beer world and there are a lot of them. But coming from, uh, you know, 12 hour days in the kitchen, not making a whole lot of money to, you know, a reasonable eight hours a day at a reasonable time uh, working in breweries. I was like, hey, this is a complete lifestyle change. This is great. Like I can be a normal human again, right? Not working on the weekends anymore. Uh, I have like a very routine schedule. Not working till midnight. Yeah, not yeah. working till midnight, two o'clock sometimes, two, mm. two, two a.m. Yeah. So yeah, it was, a, it was a good change. But then again, like, uh, you know, working for Goose, working for an institution, becoming a part of Chicago. I remember like, you know, looking outside and, you know, it's snowing and I, coming from Texas, that's not something we see. And it's snowing outside and it's, you know, and it's November and you walk into the Goose Pub uh, out of the brewery and that rich mahogany bar is covered. Uh, uh, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of people just like shouldered up uh, with their elbows kind of like sinking into that English bar. Uh, and that was just like, this is unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I just felt really connected to it. If you have been drinking beer in Chicago for a really long time, that, that was a very memorable bar. Uh, so, yeah, I just just leaned into it, leaned into Goose, leaned into brewing. Um, I didn't, like, turn my back on food or anything. It just, I never, 
wanted to be a brewer. I never wanted to cook, but I started cooking, right? And I was pretty good at it. And I never wanted to be a brewer, but I started brewing. And turns out I'm still doing it, you know, 13 years later, and I'm kind of good at it. So, uh, you know, just leaning into the things that presented themselves at the time. Um, Goose, and it just turns out I got, uh, I started working for a really cool brewery. And Goose was a really incredible place because at the time we were, you know, releasing a new beer every week. And these weren't like small batches. We were doing 10 or 20 barrel batches of, of beer. We were going through a lot of beer. So, you know, 50, you know, new beers a, a year and they're Belgians and they're English bitters and they're lagers and they're, uh, you know, IPAs and so many different kinds and, you know, oat pale ales on nitro and, you know, this, you name it. We, we probably did something really similar, if not the exact same thing at, at that that brew pub so worked there for about six years um and by the time i left i was already the head brewer there so i i was either just kind of continue grinding it out at the pub or go to goose island production facility um and you know the when you go from pub to production a lot of things change um and i, I wasn't really sure i was ready to make that leap um and then Cruz Banca came to me. It was Manny and Rick. Uh, at the time, they were looking for a brewer. Uh, my name came up a lot because I had the culinary background, and then I was already making beer. You say Rick. Yeah, uh, Rick Bayless for yeah. Frontera. And it just so happened that, like, you know, Frontera opened around the same time Goose did in the 80s, uh, and their kind of trajectory and kind of came up together. So Frontera, you know, is just as equally a part of Chicago as Goose Island has been in the, uh, for, for food to beer. Um, so, uh, I mean, who did Frontera and Rick and Manny go to when they needed a brewer? They went to, uh, John Hall, you know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Turns sure. out John Hall knew a guy and that was me. Uh, they were talking about me before I, uh, even knew it. Uh, <laughs> so they had come to me a couple of years before opening and I, I hadn't quite hit my ceiling yet at goose. So I said, no, couple of years later, they came back and then I was like, you know what? I think I'm ready. Cause I think I've kind of like, not necessarily exhausted goose, but I got to that point to where, um, I think I was ready, you know? Sure. So we opened up cruise in 2016 and, uh, you know, four or five, seven years later, we're, I mean, seven years later of cruise, I think we're just hitting this point. I mean, we haven't even tipped yet in terms of, you know, the tipping point of, you know, once that domino falls, like, the stars align and you're like really moving. Like, I don't think we've even hit that point yet. And every year it's a new, a new level of growth. Um, I can't say we've taken like a very typical trajectory, but uh, we're very much alive and we're working every day on, on it, you know, (laughs) that's what makes the story interesting. You know, you've got the pub system downstairs here Mm -hmm. uh, in the, uh, what is the neighborhood that we're in now? Is this West loop? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you are making beer here. You also, you know, make some beer on yep. a larger scale, um, using some partners mm-hmm. or a partner here. Um, and, uh, you know, now the story this year is going to get even crazier <laughs> as, uh, as you're branching yeah. out beyond that, uh, launching a strategic partnership, I think even in, yeah. in Texas to, uh, to, sure. to make more lager for the Texas market, bringing you back. Bringing me back um, to it Texas. all kind of goes back there to it's Texas. Kind of wild how that works out. It, you know, life life is funny that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about you know your approach to to designing beers, building a beer program, and then some of the specific and technical yeah. ways that you make sessionable beers, but also pull on your culinary background for that. Before we do that. 
Probrew is excited to announce that they are currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock Profill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. Also, oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers? Good thing Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega Yeast makes a yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. We are here in Chicago in the home of Omega Yeast. Yeah, uh, I can confirm all those things are true about Omega. <laughs> <laughs> Great folks over there. Great yeah. folks. As, as, as it's funny... Um, when uh when at Goose, we were very uh, we were very you know you get attached to your suppliers and you can't really uh, use anyone else after a while. And at Goose, we were uh, Y yeast uh, and with the occasional White Labs. And I had always wanted to use Omega, uh, so you know I could kind of reset uh, with opening and cruise and. Uh, it was nice to start using Omega. What a beautiful place they yeah. have there. And, uh, you know, it is it is pristine and gorgeous. And uh, they're making great some stuff. And yep. we appreciate their support here. But let's talk about let's talk about uh, the beer program for Cruz Blanca. So uh, you get tapped by Manny yeah. and Rick to, to run a beer program. Mm-hmm. And you have some ideas about what that what those beers are going to yeah. be. Um, IPA is not your jam. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but. Building flavorful beers sure. absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how did you start going about formulating a beer program for Cruz Blanca? Our core, I will say, is very deliberate. That is more um, Manny-driven. Manny's our owner, um, who's very much a part of the whole entire thing. Like, he is, he's not the, you know, like the brewer owner that kind of, like, sits in the office. He is on the ground floor. He's not the absentee the, CEO no, he is, just checking he is the PNL, in the trenches right. with yeah. all of us. And his job looks very different. He's not in the brewery, like, graining out, but he is making deals for the longevity of the brewery. Um, so he's, I mean, he's very active. Um, Rick is no longer part of the project. Uh, Manny and Rick were business partners for a really long sure. time. Um, so that was kind of like, when we opened up this physical location, uh, it's pretty large. Uh, Manny said, hey, if I can have my brewery, Rick, you can have your other side of the building for Lenya. And um, now we kind of operate a little bit more in tandem with each other. But yeah, that was the reason why there's two things underneath this roof. Uh, but anyway, um, that relationship ran its course. Rick's no longer on the project. Uh, it's Manny is, you know, takes taking sure. over. Um, there's a lot of deliberateness with the core portfolio and all that kind of stuff. And, and those are, those come from, you know, conversations that we all have. I'm not kind of like tooting my own horn, but when I look at what Cruz accomplishes, it it's kind of exhausting um, because underneath this roof, so many things go unnoticed because there's so many different things happening. And there are beers that, um, like my romance beers and those are, you know, sugar Creek. And those are things that, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, of the earth beers, you know, um, you know, we get a lot of stuff from Caleb over there in, in, uh, Indiana, the sugar Creek, Malt yeah, Company. sugar Creek mall. Yeah. Uh, we, 
had that red corn lager right up a couple of months ago. And that's true. Uh, if you're Q2. a subscriber <laughs> to craft beer and brewing. Uh, yeah. I think that was a, was it David Nielsen who wrote that yeah. story on corn um, for craft beer and brewing, brewing with corn. And we have a recipe from Cruz Blanca, I yeah. believe alongside that story. But everyone who's a subscriber already knows that, right? Because, because uh, they get the magazine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's beers like that and there's beers that, um, you know, when, you know, I, we can go to Caleb's, I can go to Caleb's and I can see in front of me how everything is done and I can see his crop and I can see his smokehouse and, you know, and we have smoked beers on and you built like a really strong connection, romantic connection to that, the corn grisette, 100% malted corn grisette. Who does that, right? Like, well, we do because I wanted to take something that was uh, close to me uh, in multiple ways and manipulate it into something that gives it respect and justice. And that's, that is like a core value of food uh, or to when you're cooking at a certain level or high level is like respecting your ingredients. And I think that that translated onto a lot of the kind of beers that we do. Smoke Alley, that was like a beer that is inspired by a certain uh, little neighborhood in Oaxaca, but it is very much kind of German, Pivo, uh, Polish, Grodzicki type thing. It's, it's, it's like a mashup of a lot of different things. And you know what? Caleb goes and he gets that... Uh, white oak and he you know he's lives in indiana but he'll drive up to wisconsin to forge it because there's this particular place that he likes you know getting it from and then he'll smoke it you know smoke it in his like modified uh homemade smoker you know at you know 500 a thousand pounds at a time so there's a really wheat too to make it yeah right to make it growth uh so there's a lot of really so you start building this really personal connection and there's a lot of beers that we do that are just like that where there's a story there's a reason there's a purpose and um you know mixed culture beers uh you know there are a lot of fruit re-fermentations with local stuff um but then you have this completely other side of what we do which is like mexico calling that's our bread and butter it's just a riff it's my interpretation of like a full-bodied mexican lager not a light lager it's of of uh, you know, like a real richer lager, despite being under, you know, 5%. And then we've got, you know, hazy IPA and, and, you know, chilada, which we came out with this year, which is lime and salt lager, which isn't revolutionary, um, but it can be done so many different ways. So there's this, you know, and so then there's more of like this commodity kind of aspect to it. And I have to respect that too, because those are the beers that I grew up drinking and then still drink. And then in the middle, you start seeing all these weird, you know, the barrel age program, which is, again, like being a part of Goose Island, Bourbon County was just like mind blowing. Um, so, you know, I got good at uh, an appreciation for barrel aging. And now our barrel age program is wild. You know, it's crazy that we do a lot of really pretty bizarre things. And then... I don't know. There, we, I, nobody said, uh, Manny didn't say, hey, do all of these things. It's just something I was given autonomy over to build the program. And uh, so that's why we do so many different things is because I have an appreciation for all of them. And I might not do them incredibly well uh, to perfection, but I think that I can do a pretty good job at all of it. And that's kind of, that's our strength and our weakness because you can go to Dovetail and they are, they live, eat and breathe lager and, you know, Weiss beer, uh, or then you can go to Hot Butcher. Uh, I'm, I live in Ravenswood. Uh, so, you know, familiar with that area. You can go to Hot Butcher, Bread and Butter is IPA, man. Like Jude, they do a great job over there. And you come to Cruise and we're just kind of all over the place. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. 
you know. Yeah, but there's a story here, and I think that that's interesting to to trace those connections as we, you know, hear about your you know mm-hmm. culinary history, and you know you're making beers in much the same way, try, yeah. you know, trying to um, you know walk walk back to that farm and follow sure. through the process, um, and some of those beers, but at the same time also making everyday beers that are flavorful and, and yeah. fun to drink. Um, you know, we should all say like Cruz Blanca, it is a brew pub here. There is a full restaurant. Sure. You know, the, the culinary side is fantastic. And so you have some of those resources to pull on and you are also designing beer here that will complement food, yeah. um, you know, just by the, the sheer nature of it. Um, but it's interesting to see how these pockets kind of fit into your own history and interests, yeah. uh, you know, and that you've carried those, uh, you know, along the way. Yeah, because I, I, when with cooking, I was you know lucky enough to work for places. Well, I don't know. I, there's two different ways to look at it. There's luck, and then there's just working hard to get into the kind of places you want to be. A lot of people have said, "Oh, you got lucky with this, this, and that." And there's there is a, a sheer f- a stroke of fortune with a lot of these things. But I mean, like I had to want to go to Goose Island. I could have stayed at at the Bristol and cooked, but I. I inserted myself into that brewery until I was a part of it, you know? And I did that into kitchens because, I mean, there's an eagerness uh, that, I mean, eagerness it can kind of be a little overwhelming at times, but uh, th- there's a there's a sheer want and willingness. Sure, you had the hunger. Uh, you had the hunger, yeah, you're right. Um, and I still do have hunger. Uh, it just looks a little different these days. But yeah, um, again, it going back to that respective ingredients and how does it want to be treated and manipulated. And again, like with Cruz, there's this romance side with a lot of the stuff that we do that is very unique to, to my personality. And then there's things that are more brand specific, uh, like, you know, Mexico calling and our core and stuff like that. Um, so you kind of get it all underneath one roof and it's, it's challenging to have to wear, to, to play that spectrum, but I'm happy that, and I'm really glad that, uh, I have the space to do the things that I want to do because a lot of brewers don't have that. Sure. Sure. Well, I want to dig into some, uh, some specifics and some details around that because you, you sure. throw out something like hundred percent corn grisette. Uh, <laughs> and you know, and that's something unique. We have never on this podcast talked about a 100% yeah. corn beer. Um, you know, and since that clearly that ingredient has some special connection for you, I want to talk about not just you know the why, but also how you employ that and how sure. you uh, can actually make a beer that way. Before we do that, brewers, are you looking for the best beer, mead, and cider recipes on the planet? Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 National Homebrew Competition medal winning recipes. American Homebrewers Association members have access to nearly 1,400 trusted and tested recipes, plus a Zymergy Magazine subscription exclusive discounts, live webinars, instruction videos, and more. Plus, sign up for a membership by December 31st, 2023 and select a free brewing book, a $25 value. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org slash cbbpod. Also, building a brewery requires coordination, equipment, supplies, funding, and more. It's enough to overwhelm any savvy brewer. Lotus Beverage Alliance simplifies the process, offering all of the elements for your business in one place. Need an ally for your brewing venture? Their team of engineers, brewery consultants, and financial advisors are here to help. With Lotus on your side, you can focus on what you do best, bring exceptional beverages. Lotus Beverage Alliance, www.lotusbevalliance.com. All right, Jacob, let's talk about 100% corn (laughs) grisette. 
Um, that just uh, strikes me as weird and difficult. Sure. So wa- walk me through it. Uh, why make it? And then yeah. what did it take to actually make a beer with 100% corn that's going to ferment in the way that you'd like it and make, uh, you know, and then, you know, how did you step through each of the processes from, you know, initial yeah. ingredients, you know, through choosing yeast and, uh, you know, and making this, mm-hmm. uh, the beer actually turn out the way that uh, someone would expect from a beer called a grisette. This is a total oxymoron, but like, I think that an approach to cooking fermentation is it's like it's minimal intervention at times and it's very technical at the same time it's knowing when to when to start and stop and when to push the gas and and when to push the gas and when to you know lean on the brake a little bit and and that's always been my approach towards beer and food and and this was one of those kinds of beers where you know Caleb is like hey I'm malting corn this is five years ago, probably in, huh, all right, well, I work for a Mexican brewery, per se, or, you know, or an idea of a Mexican brewery, corn, that would be the expectation, right? Funny that we don't even use corn in our lagers, uh, (laughs) but we use corn in other things, so. Only in the expensive beers. Yeah, only in the expensive beers, which is hilarious. Uh, So, he's like, hey, I got this white corn, do you want it? Yeah, I'll take it, I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet, but I'll take it. And I was like, I kind of want to, kind of want to do something wild and really showcase the corn because in because going back to the food, like you you have an ingredient and you want to put it on a pedestal. So I take in all this white corn and I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do with it? And then Caleb's like, well, the extract is super low and uh, you know we can't mill it like barley. It has to be really coarsely crushed and at 100. Uh, percent If you mill it too fine, it's just it's a it's you'll get stuck. Um, so I needed a coarse crush. The extract's going to be pretty pretty low on it. Um, bunch of rice holes, uh, but brewed it because it's malted just with the normal brewing, uh, a mash uh, regimen regime, whatever. And um, just single infusion mash. Yeah, single infusion. Again, imagine like, a low temperature to try to just make everything um, fermentable. Well, that's I, actually I have no idea how corn. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's good that you say that because yeah. then that in lies where the style came from or the inspiration for the grisette is because unsure of its extract, right? don't know how it's going to perform in the brew house, but what I can, the things that I do have control over is drying it out to absolute zero. Um, if I were to use the lager yeast or an ale yeast and my extract is low. Um, you know, those first batches, I don't know if it, I could have put in, I could have done all the math in the world and wouldn't have known because it's uncharted territory. So I could have planned to do a 5% lager all corn, but I, I didn't know what it was going to behave like in the brew house. So I was like, best bet, even if your extract is shit and you get an eight Play-Doh beer, um, off of using like 900 pounds of corn for a tin barrel batch, as long as you dry it out, it's still going to have alcohol in it, right? Like you're going to get to something right. that's not, uh, you know, that's you're going to get somewhere versus, you know, I, brewing like a one and a half percent lager and being super disappointed by that. Um, at least I could get, you know, 4% or no, you know, the, the preliminary batches were very 
a, you know, less figured out than they are now, but, um, so you I, have two options then to drive in. That's either mm-hmm. what a diastaticus saison yeast mm-hmm. that's going to push, 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 yep. you know, and get to dry or, and, or Britannomyces that over time will also yeah. get you to that dryness. So well, then I guess the ingredient when you like, use, yep. determines the, the beer that you're going to make yep. that way. So when you use both of those, a diastatic yeast, which is in this and Brett, um, yeah, the thing is it's like negative Play-Doh. It is about as dry as you can get. So then I can ensure that I'm going to get some reasonable level of alcohol versus using like a less attenuating lager yeast, L yeast, whatever, you know? Um, so then I'm like, okay, I can use these things, really dry that thing out. And we're already talking about a 4% beer, maybe under four. All right. Now when we're what in was ta- the extract percentage on this? Do you remember? Those first batches were like at 50 and now I'm up towards like 65, which uh, Caleb will say it's, you know, sitting at north of 70, but that's with a very particular kind of crush and a very particular type of uh, mash procedure with single infusion. I mean, if you have to crush it coarsely. Um, so the extra stout bit different. brewer too, <laughs> like you're used to low uh, efficiencies. And- Funny because our stout still, <laughs> our 12% stouts, 13% stouts still finish at like eight Play-Doh. So they're, 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 they're well fermented. But you're used to inefficient mashes Correct. that, yeah, uh, you absolutely. know, using first runnings <laughs> and not sparging and all those yeah. fun things to like, you know, push that, right. that, drive your efficiency way down. You, you know, you, you can work sure. your head around it. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Using a lot of grain without so, getting much out of it. I mean, yeah. And, and to that point, so then, I mean, like, like get as much as I can out of this and then just ferment it to nothing. Uh, so that's, you know, the choice of yeasts. So then, uh, you know, you're using, uh, super dry saison yeast using Brett. So then I'm like, what better way to capture corn and you really bring, bring it all together, you know, at, at its heart, um, culture, uh, 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 you know, harness, uh, bacterial culture off the corn and use it in the beer very much like you would a traditional Berliner or something. Um, and that again goes into just like wanting to put the corn on the pedestal. So, culture, uh, isolate, uh, bacterial culture off the corn, uh, for acidifying the beer. Um, and that's just through multiple steps, uh, step ups from, you know, enough to something that I can get a good pitch with. And then it's all just like a co-pitch. Uh, so test with this culture to make sure that it was actually going to, going to ferment and yeah. Um, yeah. We ran a couple little tests (laughs) and then, you know, just through multiple flask, uh, uh, generations, you just kind of sure. start to isolate what's working and what's not, um, just through temperature and nutrition and hops, no hops, blah, 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 all those things. So yeah, I was able to get something that was producing favorable, um, character. So yeah, pitch that with, um, it's like a wine like fermentation. Yeah. Where it's, you know, so, wine, you know, with yeast off of the grape skins. Correct. Yeah. Except now you're using corn and uh, <laughs> a corn derived culture here. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's fun. That's wild. Yeah. It's, it's at the heart of it. That's like something that comes kind of from food where you, I mean, nothing goes, uh, nothing's wasted, right? Like you use every bone and every piece of skin sure, and, and sure. you know, in certain kinds of cooking. So uh, essentially, if you can kind of attack uh, these flavors from multiple angles, uh, showcasing different things, and you get something that's uniquely its own. So that's, you know, where corn rosette comes from. 
Um, so crazy, crazy amount of prep work, however, for this yeah. to be able to culture, uh, you know, ferment fermenting sure. bacteria culture yeah. off of <laughs> off of corn. Yeah, run it through multiple generations. Make sure that it's going to give you uh, flavors that you want mm -hmm. and produce acidity and be able to operate in an alcoholic environment, which yeah. not all of these natural yeast really are. And going through that process to set it all up so that you can make this yeah kind of a one project sure here using this malt from sugar creek that's and that's that goes back to that statement of like this almost oxymoron of like minimal intervention but also very well thought out so it's like all i can do is kind of line everything up and then once it's in there it's in there and it's going to behave how it behaves and but if i can put everything into place in a thoughtful way then hopefully it's going to we cross our fingers and that's when we step back. Yeah. So, and that's what happens with this beer. So yeah, it's, it's a very, you know, is it's a good way to showcase the corn because it has such a unique flavor, but it is, it, it's beer. If, you know, depending on what day you drink it, I think it kind of changes. Um, sometimes it's very, I get a lot of corn. Sometimes I, it just tastes like a, you know, like a nice dainty little, you know, barley saison. So it's sure. And then, you know, with the style, it's bottle conditioned. Um, there's a Brett character in it, but it's super soft. There's a nice tang acidity from the corn uh, bacteria. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's full corn, but it doesn't taste like our idea of corn. Sure, sure. It's really cool. So now if I'm, I'm tracking back, because it's a, uh, you know, diastaticus and Brett beer, you probably didn't mash it as low because Just you want to give that bacteria yeah. something to, to work on over time. You don't want yeah. it to fully ferment before the bacteria can yeah. produce acidity. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty normal mash, like 150, 152. Yeah. It wasn't super yeah. low. And yeah, it's pretty wild because this corn, it has texture and it has body and it and it. And it has, you know, it supports a head despite its acidity. It supports a little bit. It, it, it's quickly fading, but it does have that. And it has body and a texture for for four percent beer. It, it it almost has more texture than a than it feels all barley. You know. It's, Do you know the the kind of protein content of the or oil content? Because I know that you know that could certainly yeah. with corn. You know, higher any higher sure. oil is absolutely going to work against your your foam retention. But. Um, no, I don't, yeah. and okay. I. Maybe I don't need to know, you yeah, know, because again, yeah. this is one of those beers that it's like, just, I kind of want to be hands off sure, a little bit and let it do what it needs to do. And had it had uh terrible head retention or terrible foam or negative foam, um, and so be it. But that's yeah. what, yeah. I mean, that's what you get when you have, when you're doing something like this, uh, you just have to figure it out. And yeah. so, so we've done, so done it for five years now and, and I've pretty much kind of have it dialed in as Caleb has the malting of the corn kind of dialed in. So do I have the procedure dialed in and, but it took a long time to get there. Those first batches, uh, you know, started, you know, half barrel, couple of half barrels, and then, you know, moved up to doing smaller, you know, five barrel, eh, not, no, totally five, but, um, some smaller runs and now, you know, 10 and 20 barrel batches, um, so it took a while to really get to this point, but it's just something that's really cool and unique to its own. Yeah. So this has a pretty deep golden color. Yeah. You know, I imagine there's a, a relatively long boil then on this. Like, what's driving the color? One hour boil. Huh. Uh, really? It's white corn. I mean, uh, yeah. Again, we we walk in to this with the assumption that it's going to be a particular way because we all know what corn tastes like. Sure. But it's just not. 
and I don't, and I didn't have any expectations of what it was supposed to be. Again, it's just like, if you just kind of set things up and you, and you just knock them down and you step away from it and where the, you know, where do they say like, you know, where the, where the chips lay, you know, how, sure. how the cards yeah. fall or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. You just kind of have to turn your back on it and see what happens with it. And it turned into something that's uniquely its own. Um, and again, bottle conditioned and it's just like a pretty beer and it's alive, you know? Yeah. Are there, uh, were there any quirks in the fermentation? So you're going to then blend a, you know, kind of a, a Saison strain, a diastatica strain yeah. with the kind of acid producing culture. Um, how'd you go about doing that? And, uh, you know, was there anything else to this fermentation that uh, was interesting? Um, no, it was kind of business as usual. Um, there was a really healthy, uh, corn lactic bacteria prop and pitch. Um, generally with stuff like this, you if weren't I'm, trying to, to strain it and, uh, well, yeah. sort of, um, okay. usually with beers like this and with the uh, mixed culture stuff, a pretty gross under pitch of any sort of sack and, uh, a little bit heavier on the Brett pitch. Um, and then if it's a mixed culture where I just don't really know what I'm pitching, I just kind of, kind of control that with IBUs, but this was, uh, deliberately kind of stressed out because I did want to let the bacteria kind of the corn bacteria really make it make a presence. So yeah, like a nice under pitch of the Saccharomyces, mm. uh, Saison strain. And then, um, I mean, the Brett's just going to do what it does. So it, it, it extends, it's, it spins about, um, about three months in stainless until it reaches this point to where I'm happy with to package. And as, uh, as it ages out in the bottle, it becomes a little more acidic. Um, but it's a really slow, it's a slow process. It's not like this super dynamic oak aged, uh, you know, Saison or anything. It's all stainless, but it's a very clean execution of the corn. But yeah, you just kind of have to let everything do what it needs to do. Sure. Are there any specific, do you, are you public with the yeasts that, uh, yeah. that you use this? Uh, French Saison, um, Omega. Oh, there you go. Omega French Saison. I love French Saison. I think that uh, it is incredibly versatile, um, despite conventional thinking. Uh, been able to like make really heavily fruited beers with French saison that don't even taste like saison, depending on. And it's all about how you ferment it. Uh, free rises. I oftentimes in the past have used it against Omega's uh, recommendations, and you know ramped it up to like you know 104. You know, and 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 and, and I find that the hotter it ferments, the more neutral it becomes, especially with this French Saison. And if I kind of hold it back at, you know, 80, it gets a lot more estery. Um, so that's- You're the second person <laughs> who has told me that in the last three weeks oh, right wow. now. Yeah. Um, no, Jeremy from Protagonist was stating the same thing that, uh, you know, with that, with a French Saison yeast, you know, they, he's absolutely pushing the temperatures and letting them rise yeah. because it actually becomes more neutral at that higher temperature. That's a cool. little bit- uh, you know, it seems counterintuitive sure, on some right? level, but, uh, yeah. You know. And that's a, that's a sheer observation of mine after you just using it so many times uh, for so many different things. And, uh, that's cool because I've always felt that way. And a lot of people, uh, don't necessarily, um, believe in that. And Omega, you know, when I told Lance and Laura at Omega that I'm fermenting it at like one Oh five, she's like, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> uh, but Okay, Breaking you know. The law. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it 
the yeast in itself, right, yeah, right. Francaison. And then the Brett pitches is like, it's from Oak, uh, you know, it's from, and at this point in time, um, our kind of mixed culture Oak stuff is, it's so many, it's collabs, it's bottles, it's, fr- you know, fruit, it's right, a lot of right. different stuff. Um, so that's a, a, a little slurry pitch in there as well. Sure, sure. Uh, well, that's really cool. So then IBUs are are pretty low on this, probably like eight yeah. ish. You know, <laughs> just just enough to dial the acidity. And the acidity is it's nice. It has that kind of you know fruity lemon lime yeah. citrus character to it, um, but it's also not overdone. Yeah, you know? and that's that's kind of it. Um, for a grisette, actually, it is leaning on the acidic side for grisette, um, but I just didn't know what else to call it. And that a lot of the beers that you know we do. I don't know what to call because they're more flavor driven and sure. we want to put things in nice little tight categories and, and I don't, uh, I didn't have anywhere else to put it. So I felt like, uh, grisette, it's in the style of grisettes because it's really kind of table beer, low strength. It's inspired by, but yeah, it's got a little more acidity than some grisettes, but that's just how we got there. But know? yes, and blind judging, the judges don't know how oh, to no. handle it. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, you know, this is a beer that needs more of a story than it needs, no. you know, style guidelines, you know, to define it. But that's that's really interesting and really fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, anything else to bring a 100% corn <laughs> beer? Uh, I mean, what a what a strange and sure. wonderful process. Yeah. Um, so that opened up the door to working with corn. And... Um, corn, I guess, again, people have this expectation that, you know, Mexican brewery, you need to be using corn. And, you know, so we did, but I didn't give it to you in that way that we all were expecting. Corn is such a, like a sacred thing to Mexico. It is, it is the pillar and the foundation of existence and it is used, uh, you know, and is consumed multiple times a day and it is, and it is very important to Mexico. And, and the last thing that I think uh, after like a lot of research and things like the last thing that Mexico would have wanted to have done with corn is put it into a beer uh, that, you know, and that was basically a beverage that was brought via uh, colonialization uh, forceful uh, to Mexico. You know, it, it was reserved for food. And but the expectation is always that corn is used in Mexican beer. And well, OK, then I'm going to give it to you in a much more articulate way. Uh, it's a long story to tell, but, uh, you know, we get to stuff like this. So then, you know, we're not bringing corn in from Mexico. We're using what's around us, which is very in the spirit of, of food and, um, and even, you know, it, in beer, you know, and, uh, you know, Bavarian brewers have their selection of yeasts and of raw ingredients and uh and hops and that's what specifically makes those kinds of beers and generally grown within several hours of where they are yeah so that's so this is like my attempt at that but that is very still in the heart of food and in the heart of production of beer so again it's like very very well and thought out and technical but at a certain point, you just have to stand away from it. Sure. Does corn find its way into any other beers that yeah. you make? Yeah, so we did have that uh, red corn lager that um, we haven't actually brewed it in about a year or so, but I should get it on the schedule soon because it's a hundred. It's 70% red corn. It's Bloody huh. Butcher red corn, which is an American red corn. Yeah. Uh, Caleb grows that. Um, so I do it at 70% red corn. 
And there's a little rye and a little bit of uh, malted barley in it. Again, it's Caleb has that. Um, and uh, it is this delightful kind of like light crimson kind of peachy color, I think. And huh. through fermentation, the pigment changes its color a little bit. But again, that's another one of those beers that it's a very unique flavor to it. And then when I say it's, oh, it's 70% red corn, people's kind of, their uh, their mind kind of like is a little confused, right? Because sure. again, we have this idea of what corn should be, and it's just not. And that Bloody Butcher red corn has a very kind of like spicy, um, peppery, black pepper character to it. And um, you don't really know it until you use it at such a high percentage. Yeah. And uh, there was a distiller, I don't think he's... Uh, currently with them, but uh, had this conversation with him a couple of years ago uh, at this uh, distillery called Judson and Moore uh, here in Chicago. And he uh, tried the red corn lager at some event. And he's like, this is really fascinating because we just brewed like 100% Bloody Butcher red corn distillate. And it has that same like black pepper, uh, kind of like uh, black pepper. It's not like ashy um, as in like, uh, you know, tobacco ash or wood ash, but it kind of has that like mineral kind of character to it. Mm. Um, and he was able to kind of pick it out. And unless you use this stuff at such a high percentage, it's, you don't really get a real understanding of it. So, so that's why everything's used at such high percentages. <laughs> brewing a 70% red corn lager seems like, uh, you know, you're, you're biting off yeah. a nice technical problem. <laughs> Right. To solve. It's the same thing where the mash is terrible. Um, that In that lager, I do use uh, enzymes. I will uh, beta-glucanase and a little bit of um, uh, amylase, uh, not amylase, um, alpha amylase enzyme to just yeah. kind of help initiate a little bit of conversion. Because there I do want a little bit more extract out of it. Um, and there's still enough two-row to kind of help fill things out. Um but yeah, that presents its problem too. And and then learning what I learned from um, the corn grisette with its what the brew house is capable of, despite its analytical data, um, I figured you know I can do that and make a five percent lager. It's going to be hard. And again, like for a five percent lager on a ten barrel batch, we're mashing like like almost nine hundred pounds of corn and two row and and. And, and it's, the extract is terrible and it's a really tough day and the runoff is terrible, but I mean, you just, you just do it. I don't know what else to say, you know, <laughs> makes an interesting beer yeah. and it, uh, you know, makes something that no one else is out there yeah. making because why on earth would anyone else <laughs> make an 80% yeah. bloody or 70% red corn beer yeah. or red corn lager? I kind of want to do, um, my next well, I've had this on my mind for a long time, but bring some a smoke character into it some way, somehow. Um, and that might be having Caleb smoke the corn. Maybe, you know, what happens when you smoke the malted corn and instead of using wood, you could use like the cobs of the corn. Who knows? You know, but there's there's like this, there's, I always try to do things with intent. Um, but yeah, the next corn beer, he's got this like really crazy purple Peruvian corn that I've kind of, thought about off and on and and then uh but yeah like a smoked something smoked in corn kind of like feels like a very savory very very savory beer so we'll get there 
smoked <laughs> corn beer. Yeah, yeah, sign me up for that. That uh, that sounds fascinating. And also a beer that I've never had before. <laughs> I've had a lot of beers yeah. over over the years. Never had a smoked corn yeah. beer. Nonetheless, let's uh, let's shift beers. And this is fascinating. I've you know never found anyone who has yeah. gone as deep into corn as you. Um, you know, but I also want to kind of tap into some of that goose island background mm-hmm. that experience and talk about stout brewing they are sure. some of some of your stouts have uh you know have really connected well with our blind judges they've connected uh yeah. you know, out there in the the broader beer world sure. and uh you know and it's fun to watch you bring this kind of stout background into cruz blanca to complement all of these all the other stuff all yeah. these lighter <laughs> uh, you know food friendly beers these these you know barrel aged stouts that you make are not necessarily the same kind of food friendly no. but they're that beautiful dessert course that sure. helps finish that meal. Um, you know, talk to me about how you then, you know, have gone about differentiating the barrel aged beers, the barrel aged stouts, and high gravity beers mm-hmm. um, that you make. Again, that has a story that I feel that is um, a little romantic and important to me. Um, we just last weekend was our Luchador release, and we released. You know, we make seven different barrel aged beers and you know some of them are stout some of them are kind of more paler beers uh some of them are fruited but anyway um i've stouts just been on the brain and i'm all stouted out but uh stout is get ready because cool. yeah. you're you know tomorrow <laughs> yeah. is phobab judging and I then know. uh then it's phobab festival time yeah uh yeah <laughs> Um, yeah. And we just released hanging it at the lager yeah, lounge during phone. We just released a stout today and it's like, it's kind of silly. It's chocolate churro coffee stout, but it is yeah. very much a coffee stout. Uh, and it is very like authentically made and it's super good. Um, still kind of dry, uh, for an eight and a half percent stout. It's dry. Um, but anyway, stouts, cool story. You know, it, it goes back to goose and it goes back to like, you know, at that old Clybourne brew house, it's, you know, it's November, it's snowing. Sometimes it's snowing and you're mashing in this big stout and, and then you're watching it boil in the brew kettle and it, and, and you're just like this witch over a cauldron. Right. And not, and not, uh, ever experiencing anything like that. You build a relationship with it of nostalgia and, and, um, and then having Bourbon County for the first time and like, uh, you know, we weren't brewing that at Clybourne, but it was very much a part of Goose culture and trying that. And then again, like come November, uh, late November, December, when we were tapping it at, at Goose Island at the pub, there was, you know, hundreds of people in that place to drink that beer. So you felt really connected to it. And then we did go on to brew like a lot of our own pub stuff at goose the, uh, rit- the ritual of it yeah the know, ritual that kind of, of it. yearly seasonal yeah, ritual we were releasing 750s of yeah. it you know s- sometimes at fobab they were taking awards and bourbon county wasn't <laughs> out of the pub when it was like kind of this point of kind of not contention but it was like a nice little like back and forth you know Ooh, okay. yeah it was always fun but yeah so you start building a relationship with stout i don't particularly love the i don't love drinking barrel aged stout but yeah. i like making it because it's again it's very technique intensive um so yeah an appreciation for the stout um crews with our barrel aged stouts they kind of follow that same suit of the stuff that we're doing at goose but i think they're a little bit more adjusted for um modern palate um they don't lean too far into the sweetness they still finish under 10 
but they have a lot of texture. And I like a lot of roast in stouts. Uh, just like the real, remember those like Russian Imperial stouts that I haven't even heard that term Russian Imperial stout in years, right? Well, this is probably not a time to attach the yeah. <laughs> the, the Russian to the front of that. Yeah, well, uh, that's given, true. Given but current e- geopolitical. Sure. Uh, but even despite that, right, I mean, right. at some point in time, that style kind of fell off in favor for just this much more sweeter, right. softer stout. Barrel-aged pastry yeah. kind of approach. And this, this raisin and pruny and espresso and toffee kind of Russian imperial stout or, or what I remember it being is just kind of been left. It's been left for this chocolatey kind of more softer uh, sweet stout because it responds well to barrel aging. So um, I always kind of wanted to preserve a little bit of that with these stouts and they're, they are very roasty. Like I, I use a ton of crystal and a ton of chocolate and a ton of black malt and up to the point to where it's like, Again, it's against uh, recommendations, but through the long aging, it's all those sharp edges soften a little bit. Uh, but yeah, um, that's kind of, I've stuck with that because that was, those were my first memories of stout, which was like, man, this is roasty. And this is, has like some really rich, you know, sun-dried uh, fruit character to it, pruny and figgy and stuff like that. So I try to keep that alive with the stouts. Um, that's interesting. And it's something, I mean, it's a conversation that we just had, uh, last month at our, our best in beer tasting with, uh, Stan Hieronymus and Kate Bernat and Joe Stang, uh, Patrick Dawson and me and, and trying to, uh, you know, there were some of these, you know, th- uh, kind of throwback mm-hmm. approach, maybe what, what I hear you saying is actually interesting because it is both modern and echoes back to yeah. that kind of classic approach um, that focusing, you know, something like Bourbon County has that classic approach, but it also maybe doesn't have the same kind of body and textural yeah. approach. And what you're trying to capture is this modern approach to this silky texture, yeah. um, but, you know, with a controlled sweetness, but also with these kinds of big and bold yeah both fermentation flavors and significant roast malt character that can all work together. You know, and this is, it's something that we talk about all the time that there's no such thing as too sweet. There is such thing as unbalanced. And, uh, you know, and as long as that sweetness is balanced, you are balancing some of that body and sweetness with some of these, you know, with this roast character, then that can work. And that, that fits your preference and what you want to put out. It's not that every brewer has to do that, but uh, this is your approach and you think that there's something to that. Yeah. I, I want, my stout to kind of like fight me back a little bit like it should be fulfilling but it should also have a level of warmth to it and i i, I like i want to feel it when i drink it so that that roast uh is necessary and i think there was a, a time recently where yeah we just kind of like we got a little bit away from that and you can always like add a lot of like, uh, you know, malt extract and you can add a lot of things and a lot of just straight up deep bitter black malts to kind of get that sweet, but you lose, there's just so much in the mid palate of that consumption that you miss when you do stuff like that. So, and I, again, like there is balance in stout and I really like that, but then sometimes I want to lean a little bit into the unbalanced and I want that heavy roast. Again, I want to feel my stout. Like I want to, I want to, you know, I say fight me back a little bit, but yeah, like I, 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 I want that, you know? Cool. So you're designing a, a stout recipe that's going to go into barrels and it's going to sit for, you know, 12 or 18 yeah. or 24 months or, you know, whatever that takes. 
um, within a, a whiskey or bourbon barrel. You know, how, how do you then build out a recipe? What does the recipe look like? You know, what are the what are the, some of the malts that you yeah. layer in there to, um, to build it out? So Ray Gordo is like, uh, you know, that's just our barrel aged stout, but we use the same stout base for all of the, you know, adjuncted variants and stuff like that. The stout recipe is, let me think. So, so probably a big chunk of two row, you know. In yeah, there. there's two row. You know what? Um, it changes a little bit every year because I'm always, because here's the thing. I only do maybe like, four brews of it every year for barrel aging. And every year the knobs are getting turned in a little bit of a different way. So some years I'm trying to, last year, oh, I had a little bit weak uh, fermentation. So I'm trying things to get better fermentation of it, but then it dries out a little bit more. Sometimes it dries out to where I want it. Sometimes it dries out a little bit more. We'll blend all of the stout batches that we do in that very, that year and then barrel age it. Um, you know, some batches have a little bit more crystal. Some batches have less crystal. Like last year, uh, I backed all the crystal off that recipe, um, by about 25%. So I think like the stuff that we had sent for, uh, for that, for the magazine, the Ray Gordo from 2021 or something like that, that was like the full crystal amount, uh, that we normally use this year backed off about 25% and it made like a, a pretty noticeable difference huh. and not in a bad way, not a good way. It was just different. Um, but I'm always kind of trying to turn the needle a little bit just to kind of see, to find the right mix, but it makes it hard because in addition to also adjusting the recipe, fermentation is equally as important in stout brewing and especially with barrel aged stout brewing that, uh, you um, can take it a little too far and you're left with something that's a little too dry. So it's been hard to really kind of nail it down. Like I think, I always say this, like I think I kind of have the sweet spot, but when you're only brewing it once a year, it makes it really hard to kind of to dial in, right? Gotta take good notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take great notes. I have just like a f fat binder of just all the stout brews of the year. So I can always go back from day one the first out brew to where we are today. Um, but yeah, there's uh, two row. Um, what it doesn't have that I might start putting in it is Munich. Um, huh. Just a little, maybe backing off the two row a little bit, filling the kind of center, filling the, the you know, the real center of that recipe um, with a little bit of Munich, maybe to help soften the roast, but still have the roast. Because I think the recipe right now is a little, it's two row, um, let's see, 120, there's C20, uh, excuse me, not C20, uh, C60, 120, and there's a lot of both of that. Uh, there's... What do you think, what's a lot in a general term? Like uh, I think 7%, uh, 120, 7%, C60, 7%, Carafa 2, 7% black malt, 10% hmm. roasted barley. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of, it's, when you start stacking all that stuff up, it, it yeah. makes up a large sum of the roasted malt. And that was just that year. So there may be little differences from year to year. Um, but yeah, I mean, these it's are pretty hefty percentages. Yeah, of, they're hefty percentages for yeah. sure. Um, and then it, it makes it challenging because then if you dry it out a little bit, so I'm, again, I'm always like concerned about, fermentation 
there's been a couple of years that I may have underpitched or maybe it's underpitching or not adequate aeration finishes a little short. So that never really helps. Uh, so then, you know, so the next year I'm like, Oh, I want a much stronger per- fermentation. But then it, I mean, again, it, a 28 Play-Doh beer dries out below 10. You're left with, uh, you're still left with richness and fullness, but it's not, sometimes it can kind of fall a little flat for barrel aging. So that the, the, basically the target is always moving. It's not like Bourbon County is like those guys, they brew a lot of it and they kind of have it dial, dialed in, but it still took them. A, I mean, they're still probably making changes to that yeah. recipe to everybody makes changes to the recipes. Um, or at least I would like to think with stuff like this. So, um, I do know that last year I kind of wanted a little something a little drier, um, so we got that this year and it turned out really well. But it's just ever so slightly different. But yeah, and then with the brewing it, it's pretty typical um, procedure where you just uh, I take the recipe. I can't fit it all in the mash tun, so splitting the recipe by half, mashing in, taking all the strong wort, um, boiling. You're doing an identical, you know. Uh, yeah multiple grain bill in each of the halves mm, yeah okay. in the halves take all the strong wort start boiling it and no, then so no sparge then or uh minimal so small like yeah. i might sparge for 10 barrels but i'm also having that for five barrels i might sparge with like a barrel or something right uh so not a whole lot um and then uh i'll start boiling that and i'm like laudering into the boiling I'm laudering the second batch into the boiling wort. So it's just always kind of like just, just constantly going and going and going and going. Uh, it's pretty good boil. Um, so I guess that first half I'll actually the first half I'll, even though it's half of a tin barrel, I'll lauder to about seven or eight barrels because I'm going to be boiling it for such a long time. Yeah. So by the time I, uh, you know, take the lotter, get mashed out, get mashed in for another batch on a single infusion tin barrel. I've already been boiling for hour and a half, two hours. So I'm already getting some really good evaporation. So then I start lottering into wort that's already boiling and the lotter is pretty slow. So it never stops boiling. Right. So I'm just lottering onto boiling wort and then it'll boil, or boil for another like two or three hours to hit those gravity. So, I mean, it's a, it's just all boil. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. That is not as long as some other folks are, our boil, obviously, oh, yeah. we've 12 got, hour boils. You got, and, you know, 30 hour boils, yeah. you know, with three mashes, uh, you know, happening out there in the world to, you it's know, to not, go. Not for me. <laughs> yeah. To go into that, like, incredibly yeah. thick, inky, reduced, you know, kind of stout approach. You know, but body doesn't, isn't also like just sweetness. You know, there's yeah. other characters oh, for sure. to it um, to build that. And if it's just sweetness, then, uh, you know, that's not exactly the level of depth that you're looking for. Right. And I mean, there's a pretty good amount of oats in there. Um, I think, you know, taking all that strong, the first wart, I think you're preserving a lot of that. I think just by the, just by design and just by the recipe itself with all that crystal and the body is kind of just like the byproduct of what the flavor I'm trying to achieve is, but the body is always going to be there because it's what happens when you brew, uh, you know, a 12, 13% stout and you only take the first runnings and you boil for such a long time. So I don't, so maybe the body is always kind of tweaked with fermentation. Basically. Yeah. I think, cause it's always going to be there with, with a beer that that's sure. that that's that high in gravity. But, um, 
I think I can move the needle a little bit um, on its on fermentation and trying to not have it finish out as much or finish out more, depending on what yeah. I'm kind of into that year. And then I, I, I'm, I might brew um, oftentimes uh, multiple batches. Um, I might do a little bit of different stuff with each batch just to kind of see, just to humor myself, right? Sure. That's why you, you always blend in the end. Yeah, because it all gets blended. And it all gets blended and then it all gets put in barrels. So sure. we, I can do that, which is nice. So yeah, one batch might be a little sweeter um, or one batch might be a little bit heavier on the roast. Uh, maybe I'll up, down a couple of things, but it's just kind of funny because after six years of brewing it, it's I still don't have something that like completely works that I can just like press go blindly. Sure, I sure. think I'm almost there, uh, but you know. Still tweaking the parameters. Still tweaking it, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think personal tastes change. Yeah. Industry changes. So um, I remember deliberately last year saying, I, I want this to dry out a little bit more because I'm like, I'm hoping <laughs> that the industry will start appreciating that drier stout, you know? Because I remember like uh, Fremont Brewing along yeah. several years ago. It was like Dark Star. Yep. Man, those stouts were absolutely incredibly balanced and insanely good and they weren't terribly sweet i mean they were yeah. fairly dry for the time and they were like had some good you know structure and bitterness to them so that's i'm like crossing my fingers that maybe the world will start appreciating that a little bit more <laughs> uh, and to a certain extent there's a lot of people who do do sure, that there's sure. there's there's breweries in chicago who are making stout like that you know beguile with Imperial pajamas, barely pajamas. It is very much a stout like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're not like trying to go for this, like, you know, 20 Plato finishing stout. Right. Um, so I always kind of hope that that sure, kind of return. Sure. Um, so you're, you're pushing also, as you mentioned, for some of those dark fruit characters. Is that uh, impact? I, I mean, uh, what yeast do you ferment with then? Uh, you know, there are plenty out there that are going straight kind of Chico West yeah. Coast. Yeah. yeah. USO five Chico. Okay. But I can, I can adjust that by just the pitch rate. That's the good so thing. You're about, not trying to get that character from fermentation, yeast fermentation as much as you're just doing it with malt. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, that's the good thing about USO five is that it's very deliberate. Uh, like you can control that so well with the amount you're pitching. It's reliable. It, the only reason I'm using the dry yeast is because it's just really high gravity you're using fermentations. A, a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. High gravity fermentations. Um, and it's like it's a one and done pitch, right? It's just so I mean, liquid pitches sure, for sure. stuff like that can get really out of hand really fast. And the beer is already expensive and it's gonna be more expensive because barrels are expensive now, shipping costs is expensive, uh, adjuncts are I mean, everything is so expensive. So it's like if if I can save some bucks on some yeast, I know that that's not necessarily like, it's not the driving force behind flavor, but it's just as equally important. Um, something clean and neutral, and I can kind of turn the knob a little bit in, in either direction with with fermentation schedule. Mash rests, uh, mash temps, um, and just the pitch rates. Sure, sure. Well, we've been talking for a while now. What we haven't talked about is uh, lager. And, uh, you know, before oh, yeah. we finish up here, I want to talk about this new project <laughs> that you all are undertaking uh, sure. in partnership uh, with Molson Coors yeah. in uh, Texas to, you know, produce and distribute uh, uh, Mexican sure. uh, Mexican lager. Yeah. Um, no shame in talking about this. It's something that we're all really excited about. Um, and 
sometimes I have to maybe, uh, I have to just keep telling myself this because, <laughs> you know, I mean, especially from Goose, there's a sensitivity towards big beer where, you know, it's the devil and it's trying to take us all down and blah, blah, blah. And, and I think Goose has recovered from that. And I think it's, people have kind of seen past all of that. Um, we're welcoming so many former, now <laughs> former AB uh, brands yeah. back into back the craft, into the craft world. world. It's uh, it's an interesting. It is an interesting scenario time. there. Yeah, I I uh, and I, I would be honest. Like most of my personal uh, problem with big beer really resides with uh, the state by state distributors. That uh, you know when, large, you, yeah. when you find what they're really doing to work against the interests of craft brewers, it's the distributor sides of those business that are engaging yeah. in you know, hefty political donations that yeah. are trying to, you know, cut off the access for small craft, yeah. and small and independent craft brewers. That is, I think, where most, like when, if I were to boil down what I dislike the most, it's really this distri- distributor side of those Yeah, it's not the brewery, uh, it's not what's happening in the brew house, it is sales tactics, it's people on the streets, it is, uh, yeah, it, those sales, AB, or not necessarily AB, just a lot of these larger brands and uh, their distributors, man, they are, they're rough. They are, they're good. They're good at what they do, but it comes with uh, a little, a lot of aggression and it's a lot of territory. It's not just sharp elbows. <laughs> it's like knives out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, and right. at this point in time, you have to be that way. Cause I, you know, if you're AB and or you're Miller or Sam Adams or whatever, like those really larger companies, like the, the people on the street, they have to be that way because they are fighting for, uh, someone's dollar and that dollar is really tight right now. Um, yeah. So anyway, so there was this opportunity yeah. that you all found with, yeah. uh, you know, by trying to sure. grow the Cruz Blanca brand in a different way, in a yeah. different kind of way and get you back to Texas. There's, there's, I, I've had to, uh, throughout the years, I've had to come to this understanding that there's that, that traditional route to success and route to market doesn't it, it doesn't work for craft beer anymore it used to be the brew pub and then the production facility and then you know and then the production facility tap room and like that model still works in some places but um and for some breweries but it is so hard to do that now and to keep continue growing because nobody wants to build another brewery I mean, some people do and some people are. But. There's an immense amount of capacity out there in the <laughs> yeah. brewing world right now. You Correct. know, by the most recent, like what, 40 plus percent yeah. unused capacity out there in the brewing world. Building another production facility scary. Se- seems like an unnecessary move. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's a fine line because at the same time, um, brands without breweries also feel like they're ungrounded. It feels like some piece of the craft yeah. gets lost in that. Um, you know, and so you all are still brewing every day and have sure. a team of brewers, you know, here in the brew pub, in addition to growing brands yeah. by brewing at partner breweries partners, to, yeah. you know, to, to make beer on their larger systems at a larger scale that you can then take out to the market. Yep. Um, but without losing, you know, this love, sure. this craft yeah. on a small scale. Because there's still, you can still come here and any given day, I'm still walking all over this building and you can still have a conversation with me or you can have a conversation with Tom or Brewer or Manny's here, you know, almost very frequently now. And he's always working with the kitchen and we're having meetings and stuff. So there's, there's always, this is base, this is home base. Um, so that traditional route to success and route to market is it's, it's changing for a lot of people. 
Um, we have a co-packer, Great Central, that's about a mile west of us. Um, they do our stuff for the Chicago market. We uh, started shipping beer to Texas a couple of years ago. Um, our distributor there uh, just didn't work out. So I don't exactly know how Tex- why Texas. I know that I have roots in Texas. I'm in Texas constantly. Manny, his brother, lives outside of Austin, uh, owns a pickle factory actually <laughs> in Lockhart where, you know, Texas barbecue, sure. uh, has a pickle factory out in Lockhart. Our sales director lives in Austin. Um, so, and, and we hired Josh, um, who was from Ballast Point Constellation, uh, hired him a couple of years ago, but that was kind of like coming out of COVID. So there was a lot of remote work. And then we have a team of sales reps here that he manages, but you know, he's, he lived in Austin. So there's always something taking any one of us back to Texas sure. at any given moment. Um, so we're always there. Uh, Texas market, I think, works really well for the brand because whereas oh, we do great in the summer and then right around now is when we can't, when our sales die. Sure, sure. We're, we're a summer brand and it's, you know, summer 10 year or 10 months out of the year in Texas. So a brand like, Cruise can resonate a lot more in Texas. It just so happened that uh, one of a neighbor of Manny's uh, works for Molson. Um, we know that we have part of our whole thing is that instead of opening up the production facility and employing you know seventy people and ha- having it being very really risky, um, when we have a co-packer do it, it the margins kind of stay the same because instead of employing this massive staff of people. And managing that staff of people uh, and managing the building and the maintenance and the repair and everything that goes into that, um, we can still keep our team super small and have these co-packers do it for us. And we and it's not easy. Like We have to sure, manage those sure. relationships just as much as anything else. Um, it's actually kind of harder because then, you know, we're, we have to always, you know, hunting, hunt, hunting down money and we're hunting down uh, you know, <laughs> sure, yeah, sure. getting paid is hard for everyone these days. Uh, so yeah, that traditional route doesn't really work. So it worked out better. We can keep our team really small yeah. and we can really keep focused because, um, the last thing that I want to do is spend 30 hours a week managing a, a team of brewers, which I'm capable of. And I would like to do that at some point in time, but I would rather focus on the beer. The last and, thing you want to do is spend the next two or three <laughs> years building a, a facility with a yeah. hundred barrel plus brew house to kind of brew at the scale that yeah. you would need to feed the, you know, the, sure. the Texas market. It's tough with that. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, the, risk, the, the capital risk that comes with that too. Yeah. Any, the, the capital risk is huge. Um, so, um, it just turns out that, uh, Manny, um, somebody that lives in his neighborhood, he's been professional friends with, uh, is, uh, kind of higher up at Molson and Molson's Molson, uh, headquartered here in Chicago. Um, so they, you know, they start talking, they're familiar with the brand. Um, you know, we bring up the idea that like, or the, the fact that like, Hey, we've been in Texas, like we want to be in Texas. Um, just our distributor, just the, the relationship didn't work out that well. Um, so they kind of get talking and we've done, uh, partnerships with constellation brands several years ago with this project called Takayo that was, uh, Manny and Rick Bayless's thing. But so, you know, we, we don't turn away from, you know, big, uh, big brands because there's a lot of value and, and a lot of knowledge in that too. I think that you kind of have to toe the line a little bit, but 
you know, we've never been, uh, you know, against that. So anyway, uh, the conversation kind of happens and then they're like, well, hey, um, you know, there's one of these Molson breweries in Texas has some extra capacity. Uh, they're outside of Fort Worth, a brewery called Revolver. Um, they were a, a Molson acquisition, I don't know, seven sure, sure. years ago. They're, like, you know, famous for blood and honey and it does pretty well in Texas, but they've got a little bit extra space and, you know, there's incentive for everyone to keep production numbers up. We can be now, you know, Texas loves Texas. And what you want in Texas when you produce a product is to have the Go Texan sticker on it because people in Texas want to buy Texas things. Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, Texans love Texas. Yes. And, and they love Colorado too, where I'm from. Um, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, te- it's, yeah, Colorado is like where people from Texas go when they, don't want to be in Texas, I guess. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it, they have a lot of pride for Texas things, and that's what you want, right? Right, right. Um, because when we were uh, shipping to Texas uh, from Chicago, we, you know, it says Chicago in the can, we were, you know, pre-approved for 250 HEB stores, but um, they won't, a lot of the stores wouldn't take it because, hey, you're not brewed in Texas. So we have the opportunity to be brewed in Texas. Uh, not only that, now we have Molson Coors, you know, at the helm and that, and the technical conversations that having with Molson has been incredibly beneficial to me. Um, it's been incredibly beneficial for them because we both are bringing things to this brewing relationship that, sure. I mean, they're, they are so adamant about matching Chicago's water profile. They're pouring from a very alkaline well, like that in itself has consumed a ton of our time sure, just sure. figuring out water profiles. Um, you know, their brew house versus uh, what we're doing here. Recipes don't scale linearly. Um, dry hopping techniques like uh, that has taught so much on both of our ends about figuring things out. You know, crazy thing about, you know, making large scale hazy beers is that it's not that easy uh, when you really start, you know, turning, you know, 200 barrels at a time consistently. We have it dialed in here in Chicago, but their, you know, their brew house is different. Their water's different. You know, it, these are all challenges that we've have to con- constantly kind of work through. So I'm not, sure, sure. so I'm not exhausted, uh, not necessarily exhausted. So I never run out of technique things to learn. I'm still managing these projects in a very different way. I'm not mashing in myself anymore, but I'm still having to think super critically about these recipes sure. and matching them, what's happening there, to here, um, working with their brew team. They're all super psyched and excited to be working on this project because it's something new for them. Um, they support the brand. They like it. They're in- incredibly intelligent when it comes to a lot of things that I just don't, uh, that I don't have. And, and it goes both ways because you know, there's a lot of things that they're doing that they haven't done before that, you know, we're having to figure out together. So it's been a good relationship. Mexico calling lager, uh, you know, I was talking about dry hopping and stuff. That's the main beer we're going to with Texas. And again, it's like, it's, we're kind of like, we take a play out of Modelo's, you know, we take out of Modelo's playbook every once in a while. And it's like lager especial. That's what Mexico is. It's, it's, and it's in Texas, it's like the craft of alternative to Mexican imports. Um, and so far it's going incredibly well. Um, you know, we can still say brewed in Texas. There's a story behind it. We're in Texas frequently. We can still have those good distributor relationships. Um, you know, my, I can, I could say to anyone, you know, it was funny. I was in Texas a couple of weeks ago and we were doing, um, this, uh, we were doing like, uh, how do you say it? Like a, 
not not necessarily an activation, but like a brand. Uh, yeah, sure. Let's sure. call it an activation. Um, and is at this place outside in, in uh, Fort Worth that big big sports kind of watching thing? And we're not really a sports brand, but it just it worked out. Sure. I mean, sports is huge in Texas. Rangers playoff, blah blah. blah you know, and you know we get talking to these people at the bar and you know oh you guys are from chicago and uh yeah 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 you know they're like oh okay well why is your beer being brewed here and you know they're kind of you know you look like a and like an outlier or like an imposter right but then i can kind of say down you know oh you know like um you know my mom lives uh you know up in round rock uh just north of austin they're like no way uh um you know uh i we both work for Round Rock Express, which is the AAA baseball team. We both work for Round Rock Express. That's so cool. Um, and then I'm like, yeah, then, you know, Manny's brother has a pickle factory in Lockhart. And they're like, we live in Lockhart, you know? So you're already like building this connection with sure, people. Sure. So now you don't look like an outlier. You just right, look like right. you're one of them. And we all have that. Everyone in our team has that story to tell about Texas. So while we don't have a physical space in Texas, um, I mean, I'm never not going to be a Texan, even though I've been in Chicago for 13 years and, and our sales director lives in Austin and we're always right, in Texas. Right. So, I mean, it, it, it makes sense for us versus going to Florida right. or it still or, comes back to the story and that, yeah. uh, that story and those connections, um, that, that make it all make yeah. sense. Well, we've been talking for a, quite a long time <laughs> here and I appreciate you on this, uh, you know, busy start of Fobob weekend, yeah. taking this much time to talk about how you brew. Is there uh, you know, what's, this is a big project for you. Is there anything next on the business or creative horizon uh, that you're really excited to tackle? Is there some, uh, hmm. you know, bubbling creative project maybe that there uh, always is. Yeah. Um, so recently within the pub itself, I mean, Jesus, again, going back to having managing and how the beer is made that's something that I always have to think about. But then also internally, you know, managing Texas and then the co-packer down the street and then managing the Brupa, we've just recently uh, went through like a big hospitality shift uh, in terms of uh, partnership that was operating the brew pub for, because we want to focus on the beer. We have somebody that kind of comes in and uh, for the food and we kind of lead and guide them. But we had a little turnover with that and now we're just managing ourselves. And with that managing ourselves, we can kind of... We know what Cruz Banca needs. So we're, um, you know, our hours of operation are changing. Uh, you know, we can better, we can focus on Cruz a little bit more on the beer, a little bit more on the food. So that in itself is requires a lot of time because now we have staff education. Education is so super big. Um, and then, you know, more avenues for sales across and through the brew pub. So next year, the hope is to, uh, be able to do a lot more of these like corn grisettes and red corn lagers and stuff. Because last year we were, I think just like so dead set on staying focused that there wasn't a whole lot of creativity happening. And then, you know, we, we were, you know, we closed for lunch. We, uh, you know, had a really small patio, which we extend the patio during summer. We have uh, tons of sales. So we weren't really moving through pub beer at the same rate as that I would have liked to. So next year, big anticipation is that we're going to move a lot more product through, um, through the brew pub. So that gives me more creative turnover, um, to be able to sell more beer. It's kind of business as usual. Um, but still want to work on some cool stuff again, Mexico calling and all that commodity stuff. Like we're going to continue. I continue to work on those recipes sure, and dial it in, sure. but I want to do more grisettes and more mixed culture things, mixed culture. That's a tough one. 
that world is struggling right now, uh, at least here in Chicago. But I still want to kind of do stuff like this that's maybe a little less on the acid, more on the dryness. Fruited beers, like we do, or we do a lot of those. Um, I don't know. Keep doing the the locally inspired things, and yeah, just the, keep the trying to make pretty gets beer. Bigger and the small stuff you you want to do more of, yeah. and uh, keep those things moving at a parallel pace. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it makes a lot of sense, and yeah. I think that's a good place to bring this to a close. G and D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with twenty four seven service and support. Get natural and economic clarification with Carry Biofine Eco, available exclusively from BSG. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends, your next craft beverage. ProBrew has rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. Omega's stylized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Join the American Homebrewers Association to unlock the 2023 National Homebrew Competition medal winning recipes and the Lotus Beverage Alliance's team of engineers, brewery consultants, and financial advisors are here to help you. If you've enjoyed this episode and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. We depend on your subscriptions to the magazine. And of course, if you're a subscriber, or if you're not yet a subscriber and you do subscribe, you can go back, dig in, and check out that David Nielsen story on Brewing with Corn with a recipe from (laughs) Cruz Blanca there for subscribers only. Um, Jacob, if people want to learn more about Cruz Blanca, where do they find you out there in the digital world and here in real life? Uh, yeah, website, so it's good. Mailing, uh, yeah, mailing letter, newsletter, uh, social, Instagram, Cruz Blanca, C-H-I, Chai. Uh, there's a Cruz Blanca, Texas now. And then there's a Cruz Blanca beer. There's three handles, which I don't think are going to, I think they're going to have to merge at some point in time because it's a lot for people to keep up with. But specifically what's happening here at the Brew Pub, yeah, it's the Cruz Blanca chai handle. C-R-U-Z, Cruz, Cruz, yeah. Cruz Blanca. Um, appreciate you talking with us about brewing today. Absolutely. It's been great to get here and great to drink some beer and talk yeah. about it with you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 